Welcome to episode six of Think Aloud. I'm Harriet Fitchlittle and I'm here as always to bring you news and entertainment straight from the mouths of horses, by which I mean the people shaping arts and culture here on the South Bank. We started recording this podcast in spring when everything, and particularly the banks of the Thames, felt kind of fresh and full of promise before we'd even had the heat wave. Now it is autumn and it is so cold in central London. I'm looking down at the Thames and waiting to see kind of little fronds of ice forming along the banks. So to lift the spirits of everyone involved in the podcast and hopefully everyone listening, we've got a comedy special on this episode of Think Aloud. We are back in one of the weirder Southbank Centre recording studios. It's the changing rooms and it's acquired an ironing board since we were last recording in here and some music stands. And I don't know, it kind of feels like one of those like chef's challenges, like can you make a recipe out of these ingredients. Maybe I'll ask our guests, can you make a joke out of the various weird things that are in our recording room today? In this episode, we have an interview with Dave Gorman, who we caught up with just before the first night of his Southbank Centre show with great PowerPoint comes great responsibility. And we'll be asking Holly Walsh, comedian and writer of many funny things on TV, including Motherland, the burning question, what do you do when nobody laughs? So normally we have a South Bank Centre programmer sitting in as co-host. We thought it'd be better to get an actual living, breathing comedian in the room. So I'm joined here by Ken Cheng. Hello, Ken. Hello. So prepare for this interview. I mean, to give you your full title, Ken, you are Ken Cheng, Chinese comedian, as per your recent Radio 4 series. Yes, that series. is the title of the radio show, not just a, a moniker people give me. <laughs> so we'll just go with Ken. Yeah, you don't have to say Chinese comedian every time. <laughs> you and I were in the same year at the same university. What? I really? Know, which is a fact that you probably wouldn't remember because it bore no significance to your life. <laughs> but it did to mine because you entered Cambridge with a bit of a bang when you created this character. Oh, I see. <laughs> I see, see where so this you, is going. You... So, yeah, so my okay. first introduction to you as a comedian was via the shady personality <laughs> of Mark <laughs> Liu, who yeah. was a character who you created a YouTube channel for went basically viral around university and no one really knew whether this was a real person Mm. or whether this was a joke. Can you just explain to me what you were doing and what the project was? Yeah, I had seen this video. Essentially, okay, Mark Leo started as this video where he introduced himself as a fresher to university just before the term started and everyone thought, okay, well, this is clearly an unhinged person who would do this at all just create a youtube video it was this long introductory video where Mm. you spoke about you know hobbies hobbies what you're looking forward to including sex parties (laughs) remember correctly (laughs) yeah well basically it was based on someone at at imperial i think did it for real and it was quite awkward and it was quite yeah i remember seeing that my friend who was at imperial sent me a video and i thought i'm gonna just make essentially the same video but heighten it by a few degrees exaggerate it a bit and see what happens it was essentially a six minute video where titled cambridge fresher looking to meet new friends and he would come on and said hi i'm mark i'm just looking to meet new friends i thought this would be the best way to do it 
and here are all my hobbies and he goes around his house showing a few things that he likes to do and it's just very awkward it's just very awkward it, no one would think that was a good idea to do that and why do you think so many people thought that it was real I don't know I think it was it treaded the line didn't it I think it was very much a fine balance that it could be believable I think that was I think people wanted to believe it was real as well and it's still back in 2010 where kind of people weren't sure what was real on the internet or not now we know that everything's fake <laughs> but back then people were okay this is just reality this can't be comedy so you dropped out and mm. played poker yes I was playing poker from around, you know, I started in school and then I when I went to uni I, I stopped to do my degree and I realized I actually just want to play poker so I dropped out and then played poker for the last 10 years or so. And playing poker seems like the perfect side gig for a comedian but also for any freelancer because mm. you can do it from home. Yes. You can potentially make quite a bit of money. You yes. don't have any office hours. That's the key part is that it's so flexible that you can do it around whatever you're doing especially with comedy sometimes you get really busy but sometimes you just have weeks where you don't actually have any anything to do really so you can do a nice drop drop in and out you can have drop in and out of poker which is quite cool to do be able to do both of those but now mainly i just play i i just do comedy i've stopped playing poker for the last like year or so well congratulations that must mean the things are going well <laughs> yeah no it should mean that yeah basically it's just been busy too busy in comedy so that's good so tell me about how you divide your time because obviously you do a lot of stand-up but yes. you are also, you seem to still be, after that initial YouTube video, someone who kind of understands how the internet works. You've done some quite successful Twitter threads which is mm. an odd thing to kind of have on your CV but you did this long, very popular Twitter thread where you disrespected all the flags of the world in turn. Yes, <laughs> yes, uh, that was about a year ago now when, when Trump... Uh, there was a big thing about him having a go at people disrespecting the United States flag. As I said, okay, I'll just do every single one in order. And people really got on board with that concept a lot. Yeah, I, I guess I guess doing the internet stuff when I was younger, I, I yeah, I grew up on the internet a lot, so I kind of understand it. It's just a great avenue for comedy. You, like Twitter, you can just get so much good content out there. There's so many good jokes on Twitter. That's very inspiring. What would you say is like your sickest flag burn? <laughs> Trying to remember. There's one which, which looks like someone looking onto a beach and their legs are wide open <laughs> through their wide open legs. I can't remember which one it is. I'm trying to imagine a world flag that looks like that and yeah. I am struggling. I'm trying to remember which one that is. With stuff like that, do you sit down and approach your social media presence, for want of a better word, as a part of your job with something like that you like mm. you know i want to try and build yeah. um something this is going to take maybe three days of my time full time or do things just happen and then you ride away um, kind of mix it's not it's never felt like a full job but more and more especially after flag thread felt like it's quite a big important part of my career so you're one of the few people who isn't wasting time on social media you're <laughs> yeah doing exactly your job on there. Exa well that's what i tell myself when <laughs> i spend a whole day some days i write one tweet and i think okay that's a good day <laughs> and that, that's that's justified my day which is not a good attitude but maybe maybe it is enough your comedy um your stand-up is also you do a good line in one-liners you know you won the best joke mm. of the fringe which is Give us the joke quickly. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. Even though I hate <laughs> I know, repeating sorry. it. Um, 
I'm not a fan of the new pound coin, but then again, I hate all change. Exactly. That's the kind of reaction people give when I say it out uh, loud. It's, it's, I mean, it is, it's hard to portray full out of context, but it's clear that like your comedy does lend itself to one-liners, you, you know, Twitter's good. Do you mm, test yeah. out material online or is that a dangerous thing? I used, yeah, I used to. It's, yeah, it's, it, that's a good question because it can be dangerous because certain stuff works better written down some stuff works better for the audiences that you get on twitter or within the context of twitter and it can be risky to to go okay that worked on twitter i'm just going to sit on stage and it kind of underplays the element of how live comedy is it's a, it kind of ignores the fact that live comedy has all the things that make a live performance and that is a such a key part of it you can't just translate the two medium would you say in your stand-up shows that you pull out particular elements for your personality? Mm, I think I'm quite nerdy. That often... Uh, yeah, you're often... a lot cooler in real life. Though, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think you just definitely have a heightened persona or a persona you kind of fall into. And you also, you talk a lot about being Chinese mm. in your comedy. Yes. You ever perform it to audiences who are Chinese... Yeah, we've had a few gigs. Well, the gig here um, I did last month as part of the China Changing Festival had quite a big Chinese audience because of that. I do because it was part of a, the, the festival. The lot that's what it hit a lot of those kind of audiences. But I don't know. I don't know because my, my, the audiences which really get it are all British Chinese. I'd say they're not. I don't know how how many native Chinese come to my shows or or if they get it as much. Do you feel um, like jokes land differently? Because when I, for example, was listening to your recent Radio 4 yeah. uh, comedy special, you could, you can kind of tell that the audience is probably almost entirely white from listening because the laughter's <laughs> got this slightly <laughs> nervous quality to it. Um, you know what I'm describing? Yeah, no, I, I, it definitely does. And especially based on race, the, the Chinese audience is definitely, it's much easier to talk about Chinese experiences. Well, white audiences, they have to... It's hard to group white into one big category, obviously, but like, like specifically older white audiences have a, a certain reaction to it because they're quite new to the whole kind of that way of talking about race and identity. Well, I think younger audiences... When you I say that way, you mean uh, a funny way? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean kind of how people are talking about their identity now is has changed quite a lot in the last 10 years that I think old generations aren't as accustomed to or old people are just racist i don't know <laughs> maybe that maybe that's the issue either or so about half an hour ago before you got here we yeah. had a comedian dave gorman in here do you know dave's comedy yeah i've i've i remember seeing one of his shows when i was a teenager the google whack adventure and that was where ago. it's a good one i think because it kind of describes i asked him in the interview you know to kind of describe his comedy and he didn't do a great job of it to be honest it's hard <laughs> it's a hard question i'm always like wow it's it's funny <laughs> the google whack adventures um he kind of goes around the globe mm. flying around the world in search of people who have created websites which are the only websites to contain to, yeah a particular single phrase yeah he's just a fantastic show and 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 he used a lot of PowerPoint, which I do as well. And that was quite cool how he, he did that quite early on, I think. So there is a lineage here between Dave Gorman, who yeah. I think you're right, was one of the first people to do mm. that in his shows and make it kind of like a part of the punchlines yeah. for the jokes. 
Mm. And you, yeah. my co-presenter. Yes. So, yes. So here's my interview from earlier today with Dave Gorman, where he talks about the philosophy and the mechanics behind comedy that make it seem almost more like a logic puzzle to be solved than a series of jokes. So I'm joined now in our makeshift studio by Dave Gorman. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks good. for being here next to the ironing board and the music it's, stand. It's making me feel very much at home. <laughs> Not my home necessarily, but somebody's home. You're right. There's a sense of domesticity yeah. backstage at the Some, South Bank Centre. Somebody who likes wood. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of yeah. wood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of wood and a lot of lockers. Absolutely. Dave, lots of people get things named after them but normally when they're dead Dickensian <laughs> or Shakespearean yes to think of two of the big ones uh, they're, they're the biggest I think <laughs> they're, they're right up there well Gorman-esque to add to yeah. the list has become <clears throat> a word that is used to describe a certain sort of comedy often in reviews of new comedians when they're trying to peg it to something what does that word mean maybe as a way of trying to explain to listeners it's a very strange phenomenon. When I first saw the word Gormanesque, it was in a review of someone's Edinburgh show, and it wasn't my show. Uh, and I sort of read it, and I had seen the show it was of, and I thought, they're nothing like me. How dare I? I didn't really see the similarity. And you also weren't flattered by the comparison. It's, I thought it was a good show, but I didn't think it was like mine. I've seen it used to describe things that are a bit like stuff I used to do, but I feel like I've moved on. And I would have thought, for me... Gormaness should mean whatever I'm doing right now. And <laughs> but what for does some it people, mean? it's sort of what I was doing 10 years ago. Which was? So I, I think the thing that really started to do it, and the thing I'm proud of, a lot of people innovate stuff and they don't get the credit for it. And I'm very lucky to have done something where time and everything kind of just coalesced and I was doing storytelling shows and then tech allowed me to do a different sort of storytelling show. I always added proof to what I was doing. Normally you suspend disbelief to watch a stand-up comedian. A stand-up comedian says, a funny thing happened on the way to the theatre tonight. And you think, well, it didn't. I don't mind. I'll go with the joke. It's fine. Maybe a funny thing might have happened once. It might or might not have been on the way to the theatre. But you're probably gilding the lily and it doesn't matter. I'll go with it. And I was telling these stories that were absolutely true. And the minute people go, yeah, he's probably making this a bit funnier. They then, they're sort of calibrating and it ends up coming out not as funny. And so I started adding the proof to prove that I was telling them the truth. And then all of a sudden, you'd say, so, you know, this happened and then that happened. So I said to him, right, I'm going to go to New York. And I went to New York the next day. And they're thinking, right, he didn't go to New York the next day. But when you've got timestamps and cards from aeroplanes and proof that you did it, they're suddenly shocked because they're watching, especially in a sort of 100-seat Edinburgh venue, like the economics of that don't stack up. <laughs> this can't have been something you did for the sake of a show because there's a 100 of us and we've paid this much. And that, what are you doing, man? It kind of added to the, the veracity and the verity of what I was doing. So I, I was adding that kind of proof. I've seen Gormanesque used to describe anyone doing anything that's true and anything but by anyone involving slides or images on stage or whatever. From my own point of view, this sounds so terribly egotistical and I hate that in me. There would be people who would do shows that were like, I decided I wanted to visit every single post office in mainland Britain in July. It's one of the problems with, like, you get a capsule review. Someone, we have to describe the show in 100 words to mm -hmm. go in a brochure. So I did a show years and years ago called Are You Dave Gorman, which is about me meeting other people called Dave Gorman. So 100 words have been written saying this is a show about a man trying to meet as many namesakes as he can or whatever, it, however they phrased it. 
and people imagine I've walked on saying, going, right, my name's Dave Gordon, and I'm going to tell you about meeting other people called Dave Gordon. At which point, if that had happened, I think an audience would go, well, why do we care about that? And actually, the first 10 minutes is me explaining the conversations, the background, the backstory, and the reason why this all made sense. And the first one I met made sense, and the second one I made made sense, and it wasn't a thing yet, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew. And 20 minutes in, you're watching a man do that show, and every single step of it made sense. Well, I wanted to ask you, I mean, what comes first, the comedy or the quest? Uh, Life. Life. And then at some point, your job is to unpack your life and work out what you can make out of it. So when I was meeting the first person called Dave Gorman, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is going to be good for a show. And the minute you start doing that, you don't get a very good show out of it because you start doing things deliberately and and the audience can smell that you're not being sincere. It's one of my big issues. I, I have this sort of history with, with TV people of... I do something they like, and they say, right, what are you doing next? Yeah. And I go, I don't know, I've been thinking about doing this. And they go, oh, what will happen? I don't know. Well, we can't, we can't back it unless we know what's going to happen. I'm not interested in doing it if I know what's going to happen. But telly needs people to say, for your money, you're going to get this experience and this experience. That's why, I mean, I got very lucky at some point. I, I did a, a documentary as a, a road trip across America. And... Uh, generally, because it's a sort of smaller channel that that did it, it was on More 4, they were absolutely brilliant and said, fine, go for your life, no rules, just get in a car, buy a car, go and do it. Everyone else who does a road trip across America for telly meets a man who wrestles alligators and the world's largest pumpkin, and the da, 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 and you know it's been plotted in advance, and that's not an authentic experience of what it's like to drive across America. It must get harder and harder to have authentic spontaneous experiences but it's not because this is an authentic spontaneous experience and, Do what, you know, like, will, and the, what will the, come of it well a podcast but that that's all of our <laughs> lives alert. are constantly spontaneous and constantly authentic well i think you must also have a personality that attracts people and is magnetic in some way because the issue that most people would have with trying to do the sorts of things that you do which do involve kind of finding faith in strangers and having you know kind of creating relationships out of nothing relies on you having a personality that can convince people that you're someone worth trusting and caring about in a way yeah, I think I... Um, most Lots of comedians couldn't do that, right? I don't know. I think most people could. Most people don't want to try. But most of us have at some point left our car unlocked and then gone back and found the car is fine. Most people in the world are great. Obviously, there are some bad eggs. Obviously, you shouldn't leave your car unlocked. But our experience tells us that most of the time we do it, it's fine. And I just think I feel very confident about other people being nice. Personally, for me as an individual, it is worth me taking the jeopardy that I might run into the bad egg every now and then because nine times out of ten more than that, you're actually rewarded by very happy, nice people. Do you think audiences are more or less receptive to the idea that people are basically good than they were ten years ago? I think audiences do believe that people are generally good. I can't remember who said it a while ago. I remember somebody saying that uh, something along the lines of American comics are saying, hey, I'm cleverer than you, I'm smarter than you, and British comics are sort of playing it the other way. And and I don't care who people think is smart. I want people to think that the world is remarkable. There's a, it's really easy to make people laugh if they're also emotive. 
if if comedy is only an intellectual exercise and is only an exchange of ideas, then people get used to the rhythms and the patterns and they're a bit harder to nudge off balance and it's when they're off balance that they laugh. But the minute people are thinking, oh my God, really? Is that? Then you can you can blindside them because then they've forgotten to listen to the rhythm. They've, they've forgotten to tune in to a series of jokes. It's no longer ba 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 da 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 da. You can change the words in those rhythm, and they can all be technically as funny as you like. But if you do it twenty times on the trot, at some point the audience go, "Yeah, we're on to you." It makes me giggle sometimes internally how how. How, how easily how, manipulated How able are. I am to fake sincerity <laughs> and earnestness for a little moment and how easily people are drawn into that. But that's about the fact that there is some essence of that at other times that is real, so they don't know when you're playing and when you're not. And then you do it twice and it means something, you do it a third time and it doesn't, and they, they're off balance again. You've at various points in your career done things that fall into kind of the self-help area exploring you know tips for you followed your horoscope for a while or (laughs) things for um making the world a better place by following suggestions sent in by the public well you must have come across something doing all those shows which seemed genuinely revolutionary either in like a personal or a political sense and you thought oh this was started as a joke but actually this could change things it was in 1999 and the letter said something like, with the millennium approaching, I would like to make the world a better place. I have time, energy and commitment, but I will try my hardest to make anything happen. Send me your ideas. And the first three suggestions, one was a thing saying, my husband and I became Christians in 1978 and we recommend it to you. One was a 300 pages of white supremacy. And the, the third was we should put all freight on the canals. And that's I, life, religion, racism, and it, canals. That's, it's all there, isn't it? <laughs> There's something about those extremes <laughs> that you should try and eradicate the black man. <laughs> the whole um, of you should you here. should invest in a Bible, and we should put all freight on the canals. I'm glad to say, weirdly, that's a stage show I did in 1999. I toured it again briefly in 2003. That's its entire life. It doesn't exist in any other shape or form. About once a month, somebody will see me on the street and go, "All freight on the canals." at me <laughs> so it, it's and they don't shout the other two at me so at least the positive one came through so what you're saying is despite kind of setting out at various points in time to find solutions to problems big and small you've actually found no solutions big or small i think if you if you uh set out to find sol- solutions to problems of that scale <laughs> you're doomed to fail it doesn't mean you don't find out something along the way it's just not that it's not necessarily the solution to the problem but all information is good information all experiences are good experiences everything is a positive one way or another and that that's what i'm interested in is finding out about myself about the world about other people and it doesn't all have to have great purpose it's i know there's this is a ridiculous analogy but there's that sort of thing of you know, people go, oh, what's a quantum physicist going to discover that's useful? How's that going to be useful? And a lot of what they discover isn't useful for 50 years, and then suddenly it becomes useful. The world is never going to get use out of things I discover about myself, but I am, and it might be in 10 years' time, or it might be in 20 years' time. And somebody else might find it useful in the tiniest of ways. And um, anything that distracts someone for a couple of hours of an evening is really useful to that person.
anything that takes your mind off your tax return is really useful to the individual who that's happening to. Tell that to the tax man. Yeah, I think the tax man needs to take his, his uh, eye off a tax return for a couple of hours a night as well. It's, it's useful for everyone. There's no, it doesn't have to demand more than that. I did a show in Bournemouth the other night and there was a family who came along and their dad was in hospital and had a stroke and they'd been using, he'd bought the tickets to see the show and they, he, they were hoping to motivate him out of his rehab to get there and he hadn't made it and I had to write a note to him say, you know, we're coming back in February, do you want to come and see the show again? You couldn't do the show if you thought, I'm, I'm here to help a guy who's had a stroke in his rehab. That's how funny I'm going to be tonight. Like, you can't think about that. You can't put that jacket on every night go well tonight i think i think i might be helping a guy your ego can't deal with that the pressure on you as a writer performer is ridiculous you're there to make a thousand or so people laugh if most of them laugh you've done your job and there are oh, lots God. of old people in bournemouth so no there aren't <laughs> that's what everyone says it's not true 17.8 percent of bournemouth's population are of pensionable age compared to the national average of 18 percent. so 0.2 percent lower actually forgot you lived there yeah yeah <laughs> done my research <laughs> you, were talking... you don't know who you're talking to, young lady. <laughs> you were talking at the beginning of this interview about what Gormanesque meant and the fact that, you know, what that really means is whatever you're doing now. Yeah. And what are you doing now? I mean, you're at the South Bank Centre because you've got the first of your shows tonight. You'll be back twice more after this podcast goes out. Yes. On November 26th and February 15th. Yeah. The show is called uh, With Great PowerPoint Comes Great Responsibility Point, which is the sort of title you give when you haven't written the show, but you know uh, the structure of what you do. I am now a double act with a projector and a screen and a PowerPoint presentation. It is interesting. I've got friends who don't read reviews, and I've always read my reviews, and I'm really thick-skinned about it, and I don't mind the bad ones, and I've sometimes got a lot out of reading a bad review and I've sometimes been really angry at a five-star review because I think they've missed the point. So it's nothing about that. And every now and then it's like the biggest pat on the back. And with this one, there was a review in the Times, I think it was, that I thought, oh, he's right, that is what I'm doing. I hadn't realised that's what I'm doing. This is, compared to those old long-form storytelling shows where it was sort of one story for 90 minutes, this is much more a fusion of that format but with more traditional stand-up where the the topic is changing and evolving and growing and segues are happening and and it's not one big story. And that reviewer made a point of sort of, it's like he's abandoned the big ideas, but actually underneath it, there's a big idea. And I I wasn't even really aware that big idea was under there. And I think you end up sounding pious if you say, this is the theme for today's show. I think that that sort of stuff should always be there between the lines for people to find if they want it. It's just really interesting to see someone go, it, it's sort of on the surface, it sounds like this is bitty, but it's not bitty. There's something really meaty going on. What I've discovered by using PowerPoint to do things, my, my reason for, for using it initially was it was the best way of providing proof that I was telling a true story. But now it's become a way of mining really unlikely areas for comedy because the audience do not need to already know it. In traditional observational comedy, if you want to do material about an advert, it's only really going to work if we've all seen that advert. 
if we're all going, oh, he's right. Yeah, they do do that, don't they? Yeah. So you can talk about sort of a theme of adverts. You could talk about the where there's a blame, there's a claim adverts, and we've all seen them and we know the tropes involved in them or whatever. But that's a very limited range of what you can talk about. And if you want to talk about bigger themes in advertising that are more nebulous but are definitely there, and you can show people on PowerPoint, a French advert and a Belgium advert and a Canadian advert and a Danish advert and a Norwegian advert and a British advert and an American advert, and they're all using this trick. There is no way of doing that without proving it to them that you're telling them the truth by showing them examples. It allows me to get into observations that work, but you do not need to have any prior knowledge of at all. You And sometimes I'll say something and they're going, no way, and then I'm like, Here's 10 examples, and the laughter grows and grows and grows, and eight, and eight nine, 10, there's people sort of gasping because they thought I was making something up, and it turns out that's that's real. If your instant reaction to, I'm going to talk about the compare the market adverts, is, oh, I like them, they're funny, I can see how that'll be funny, you've already done the job, but you don't need me to be the person who nudges you over the edge. You can do that in your own living room. I want to talk about things that people go, why is that funny? Which also makes it a really hard sell, because when you talk about it, they go, no, that doesn't sound like I'll find that <laughs> entertaining. But that's also part of what you find entertaining when you're there is the weird inanity of how it all made sense. Yeah, you're never going to win the um, Edinburgh Fringe Best Joke of the Festival Prize, are you? No, they they wanted one of mine one year and I, I told them they couldn't have it because they were going to spoil the show. <laughs> they put it in the shortlist at one point and I kicked off and they took it out. <laughs> no, I'm not really a one-liners person. Having done a show, Modern Life is Goodish, I was doing on Dave for a long time. And each one is like an hour-long stand-up show. And when you start doing stand-up, you start doing it for free, five minutes. And then the kind of the unit of comedy at which people get paid is basically 20 minutes. That's what the circuit is. It's a lot of people doing 20-minute sets. And then 40 minutes is an extended set. And then an hour is your Edinburgh show. But if you become a touring act, you are, you're doing 90 minutes to two hours a night and they're different skills if you're doing 90 minutes at night it's not lots of little fives that could be put in any order it grows and it changes and it has its own arc and and there is a skill to building that i find it really frustrating that on television stand-up is presented as this short form art form that stand-up is a thing that lasts seven minutes on live at the apollo and there are great comics doing great seven minutes on live at the apollo but great touring acts are better than that. And and the comics I love, when I go and see them do 90 minutes, they reach heights that it is not possible to reach in seven minutes. And they reach it around the 45, 50, 60 minute mark yeah. because you've been building that atmosphere and grinding the gears and taking people to new places. And the callback from 30 minutes ago delivers something that you can't, you can't do a callback over seven minutes that's as powerful as, as one over that length of time. I feel really privileged. I'm the only person I can think of in the last decade who's had the opportunity to make hours on telly where you do. That's the skill we've developed as touring acts. And everyone else is like, okay, now, you know, when you were starting out and you were doing it for free for five minutes, can we have one of those? Oh, that's weird. You don't get to flex all those muscles you've built up over all those years doing all those big tours. And I was the only, I got to do 36 hours on, on the box. That's what stand-up is. And reaching a level of complexity where you need Times reviewers to... Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a text. Yeah. So in that way, you have become 
Dickensian but or Shakespearean people but are the, finding the fusion of, of complexity and simplicity. It's something that appears simple and actually has got a few layers going on. When I'm on stage, I, I feel like I try and leave 10% of me behind in the audience. I know what's happening next, but 10% of me doesn't. And 10% of me is in the audience being surprised by things. And I'm one of them. That's the only way I know how to... Everyone's timing is slightly different night after night. And it's the audience who are the instrument who are guiding you to when is the right moment to push the button. In my case, literally, on the remote control. I try and stay out of it a little bit and, and try and be a person who is surprised by what's happening next. And there's joy in that. And you're leading people at blind alleys and you're surprising them. You thought I meant this and actually I meant that is what is behind most laughs. And you leave people up to the edge of the cliff and they do the final leap. And you're trying to make it good and fun for yourself as well. So it gets layered because you're doing it every night and you're finding new rhythms and fun in it for you. It's like, you know, when you're a kid and you've got the best possible present for your mum's birthday and it's really exciting watching her unwrap it. Because you think, I've nailed it. I've, I've, I'm Some years, be. yeah. Yeah, but when you know you have, when you know you've nailed it, you think, oh, this is brilliant. And some there are bits of material that are like that every night. And you're watching 2,000 people all go, but then, ah, and two thoughts land. That is so joyful to watch and fun to be a part of. It feels very complex, but actually, if you're one of them, you know that your brain is doing those two thoughts as well. I mean, I promise you this will be the most Gorman-esque show happening tonight. It's definitely mine. Thank you very much, Dave Gorman. <laughs> You're welcome. So this week's burning question, which is something pertinent to all the comedians in the room and also someone trying to host a podcast, is what you should do when people don't laugh. And to answer that, we got the comedian... Holly Walsh has done a huge amount of stand-up as well as appearing on panel shows such as Mock the Week and Just a Minute in QI, which seem to be particularly ferocious comedy bear pits where you really don't want a joke to fall flat. So she's here to tell us, what do you do when nobody laughs? Hi, I'm Holly Walsh and I'm a comedian and a writer and I've done a lot of gigs and I am not ashamed to say, fair few of them, nobody has laughed in. That is the uh, the process of being a comedian, I think. Just trying stuff out and seeing what works and what doesn't. I'll tell you what happens when people don't laugh. You have to keep talking as though that is actually just a part of a bigger punchline that's coming. And then you have to hope that one of your next jokes gets a much bigger laugh and everyone goes, OK, fine. That was just a... That was like a little thing on the way to a joke. Cool, fine. Sometimes there's a really strange kind of cathartic feeling when you're having the worst gig ever and nobody's laughing and you just sort of start doing it for yourself and really kind of enjoying it and it's like that feeling of you know when you've been sick and then afterwards you just have that incredible feeling of sort of relief just a hot relief it's sort of like being in that area you're just able to enjoy the kind of sort of the fact that it's just Everything's just coming out of your mouth. Nobody's listening to you. Nobody cares. And you just sort of enjoy it. It's strange. 
Someone told me an amazing story once about John Hegley that he was doing an Edinburgh show and he was talking and I don't know how well it was going but there was a kid on the front row who in a silent bit just went who are you talking to? Which I think is one of the best heckles I've ever heard in my life but sometimes it just feels like you're just doing a TED talk and nobody's enjoying it. But um, I guess it's useful. I mean, that's what comedians, you know, that's what you do it for. You do it to see what people laugh at and what people don't laugh at, and it makes you a better comedian. But the worst thing is when you come off stage and someone backstage says, how do you think that went? Which is code word for, oh my God, you died on your ass. And the best thing you can say when someone comes off stage and they haven't had a good gig is, oh, what a bunch of idiots that audience is. Those audience members, just stupid. They're just stupid idiots, because... It gives you some sort of, yeah, you're right, I'm better than them. And then you go and cry all the way home in the car from Leicester. Not that that's happened to me. Ken, I mean, perhaps this has never happened to you, but have you (laughs) ever been in a situation where people haven't laughed? Oh, yeah, it's definitely happened. You can't escape the fact that it will just happen as a comedian. I don't know. Sometimes you could get a laugh out of mentioning that they didn't laugh. If you're really quick on the mark and you can really trust your instincts and you can really come up with a zinger about it. If you do that well in the moment, you can get away with it. But otherwise, sometimes it's just better to keep going. Are there particular gigs that you dread more than others? There must be some crowds that you walk in on and you Mm. kind of know this is going to be friendly faces and yeah. ready laughter which are the ones that which don't feel like that just old people just again back to the old people old people are tough they just are tougher They're and where just... would you get those at a festival maybe yeah edinburgh is quite full of old people especially because uh young people don't really have money so they can't afford to pay to see as many shows my shows have always been at three o'clock four o'clock in the afternoon which is already makes it quite hard it's not that they're not enjoying it but they're just smiling they're not really going for it vocally which you just need given that it's really tough given that it's really scary when people don't laugh and given that you're good at doing comedy online why do stand up what is it about it that draws you compulsively to it um certainly there's no buzz equal to performing on stage you can write as many tweets as you want but it's it's never going to be the same in terms of a career you can't really do it off just online i think there's an element that you have to be the whole package you have to be a writer performer everyone loves someone who can just go up there be funny in person a lot of tv people a lot of industry people are looking at these live gigs they're coming and seeing a a stand-up comedy show and they're booking people to go on panel shows off them if people want to come and see you then in your natural habitat on stage, where have you got gigs coming up? I've got a few in London coming up, but the main thing is I'm going to be touring my Edinburgh show in January to May. And while we've been talking, producer Chica has been sat on the floor cackling, scrolling through your entire Twitter feed <laughs> of flags, and she has located the flag that looks like a woman looking at the sunset through her open legs. I think those are your words, not Chica's. And (laughs) it was Antigua Barbuda. Mm, Yeah, that's it. (laughs) You must have really good global geography by now. It's a lot better, yeah. There were definitely countries I never really heard of and flags I've never seen, so that was good. Kenshin, thank you very much for coming in and being my co-host. Thanks for having me. It's been an honour. 
Thanks for listening to the comedy episode of Think Aloud. We'll be back next time to talk music. This time we're heading over to the classical department. We'll be hosting a panel similar to what we did with the curators a few episodes back. As well as that, we've got a whole host of young musicians answering our burning question, what is a conductor really doing? And given that it's November now, I think we're just about able to start talking about Christmas. I hate it when people start talking about it too early, but we are going to be having a Christmas special out next month also, in which we're going to be asking more burning questions to more comedians, including the ones that you heard from in today's episode, as well as pretty much every other funny person we've been able to lay our collective hands on. Not in a weird way. So if you particularly enjoyed this warming comedy episode, then make sure you subscribe so as to not miss it. And just to plug a couple more comedy events here at Southbank Centre, because obviously it is a physical venue, as well as being a podcast. Spoiler alert. We've got Sandy Toxpig, fresh out of the oven from the Bake Off on the 20th of January. And you can also get tickets to see the comedian Kieran Hodgson in May. 